Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We're studying the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not even the revelation of the tribulation. It's the revelation of Jesus. John has been caught up into heaven, experienced the type of the rapture. He sees the throne of God, God seated on the throne, the rainbow around the throne, the four beasts surrounding the throne. He sees the 24 elders of the church, which represents the entirety of the church in the crystal sea, which is the church, in the presence of God. Now, I'll remind you of uh, something that we looked at uh, in the first um, message in this series, and that was in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Jesus told John to write things that he has seen, things that, which are, and things which will come hereafter. In other words, Jesus tells him ahead of time that the things that John is supposed to relate to us have to do with past, present, and future events. And that's really important, especially when we get to the 12th chapter, because Jesus reveals some things to John that has to do with the past. And um, and it's it's a very unique chapter in the book of Revelation because God steps back and shows John the big picture of all things. So we'll start in chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now keep that verse in mind. It's the first time where the beast is referred to as the seven heads and the ten horns. But that's going to be a recurring theme. It's going to be something that God ties uh, together not only things that John sees, but also prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. Verse 4, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now let's identify some of the terms or some of the characters that are being referred to here. One of the things that um, uh, well God begins to use an example that all of the church should know of and certainly all of Israel should know of. And that is in the 37th chapter of Genesis, you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph's dreams. One of the dreams that Joseph had was that he saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bow down before him. Well, he told this to his fathers and his brothers, and they understood the meaning immediately. His father got angry with him and he said, should I and your mother, as well as all your brothers, bow down before you? Now, this is the second dream that Joseph has had. The first dream he saw was where his brother's sheaves of wheat bowed down before him. I don't guess um, 
His father got too upset about that because he wasn't involved. But the second dream was where the sun and the moon were represented, uh, represented his father and his mother, along with his 11 brothers. <clears throat> well, all of Israel knows the story of Joseph. All of the church knows the story of Joseph, at least in part. They've heard certain parts of it. So when John sees the vision of the woman clothed in the sun and the moons under her feet and the 11 stars, it's a clear reference to Israel. God is trying to show something to John about Israel. Now keep that in mind. I want to pose a question to you later on in the, in the uh, service. But keep that in mind. Why would God be showing John, who represents the church and who's writing to the church, about Israel? Well, we know the next character that's referred to is the great red dragon with the seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads and the ten horns represent kingdoms or countries. We know who this dragon is because his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, talking about the angels, and it cast them to the earth. So the second player in this, or the second personality that these verses refer to, is the devil. Now, if Israel is the woman, and the dragon stands ready to devour the child, and the child is identified as the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, then who is the child? It's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. Now, with that knowledge, some of these things begin to make sense. The dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour the child as soon as it was born. You remember the, uh, the Gospels tell us about that, about how that the devil tried to destroy Jesus when he was a baby through Herod, who had all the children killed throughout Israel from two years of age and under. And he fled it, and the, Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt to escape the wrath that was poured out by the influence of the devil. But let me, let me point something out here, and there's some things that, uh, that these verses of Scripture point out to us about the devil. If there's one thing that the church seems to misunderstand, it's the work of the devil or the personality of the devil. The devil, through circumstances and through his attacks, has convinced the church, it seems to me, of his great, 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 great power. Now, the church would admit, every Christian, I guess, would admit that God is all-powerful, but most of the church world compares the devil's power with God's and they have more experience with the devil's. And let me ask you a question. Why did the devil not know who Jesus was? Why was Satan not able to destroy Jesus when he was in the womb or when he was born? How did the devil not know that Jesus, how did the devil not know of the immaculate conception of Mary? 
See, the church world seems to have the idea that the devil is all-knowing, that he knows everything. Well, if he did know everything, then why didn't he kill Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus? We have no record whatsoever of any attacks that Mary endured when she was pregnant with Jesus. The only thing the Bible tells us about Mary and her pregnancy is the experience of when she went to her cousin Elizabeth's house and the Holy Ghost came upon her and Elizabeth and it makes it seem like it was a supernatural and pleasant time. Well, what about Mary's pregnancy? Why didn't the devil do something about it then? Why did the devil not know where Jesus was when he was born? I think this has something to do with why Jesus was born in the stable. If God had announced with great fanfare that Jesus, my son, is being born in some palace somewhere where he can have the best of everything, it would have tipped his hand on who Jesus was. The devil is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He wants to make you think that he knows everything. But if he did know everything, then he had been able to identify where Jesus was rather than having to use his agents like Herod to try to figure it out. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? The devil is not all-knowing and he's not all-powerful, folks. He's a deceiver. And the fact that he tries to tell us that he is all-knowing and all-powerful is proof that he's a liar. Back to verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's 42 months or three and a half years. So this scripture is talking about the last half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period where God prepares Israel a place to hide. Now the reason that they have to, that Israel has to be hidden is that the Antichrist presents himself as a man of peace for the first half of the tribulation. But after things mess up so bad and God keeps destroying everything that he's trying to put together, hindering his actions and such, the last half of the tribulation, he changes or reveals who he really is. Changes the way that he operates and becomes a man of war, declares war on Israel to try to destroy her and the people that are left. Now remember the people that are left do not include the church. They left before the tribulation began. The 144,000 and the great multitude are raptured at the three and a half year mark or just after it. So the only ones that are left is the remnant of Israel that has not yet been saved. That's who God prepares a place in the wilderness to hide. But that's who the devil's after. And there was a war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out in that old serpent called the devil. And Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, when does that war take place? Remember, John is talking about things past, present, and future. 
Well, the last three and a half years of the tribulation is future. But the great war in heaven is long since past. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18. After the disciples come back and find out that the devils are subject to them in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. When? Before man was ever created. And he was cast out into the earth. Now notice the phrase that's that's, uh, used here. He and his angels, or the third of the angels that went with him, fought with him. Fought against Michael and, and, his, and his angels. Verse 8, and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. How many of you are familiar with the book of Job? book of Job starts off something like, there came a day when the sons of God presented themselves before God and he came down to, to see what was going on and Satan was there and Satan began to accuse Job can I ask you a question if the devil was cast out of heaven as a result of the war with Michael and his, and his angels before man was ever created is it possible since there was no more place found for them in heaven is it possible for the devil to have access to God in any way whatsoever in heaven. Well then whatever Job is talking about where the sons of God presented themselves and Satan presented himself to can't be in heaven. Cannot be in heaven. Now that's going to be important when we see some other things about the devil as well. Verse 9 again, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called called the devil, and Satan which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. Notice it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Well, we have to assume that the, the brethren he's talking about is the church, the children of God. But how is he the accuser of the brethren? Who, is the, who does he accuse us to? Can't be God. He didn't have access to God. The devil does not have an open prayer line to the Father. So we've gotten the idea, or so much of the church world seems to get the idea, and I guess it comes from the book of Job, a lack of understanding that people develop their own ideas and thoughts about. That the devil is always accusing us to God, and somehow or another he has access to be able to do that day and night. But that's impossible according to what the Bible tells us has already taken place. Well, then if the devil's not accusing us before God, who's he accusing us to? He accuses you to you. That's why Paul talks so much about not being under condemnation because of Jesus. Now, notice the result of the devil being cast out. Now is salvation come. Now is the kingdom of Christ come. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that the devil accuses us to other believers too. But the only way the devil can accuse you with any success is if you believe his accusations. That's why it's so important to realize that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Maybe we should say it this way. There is therefore now no valid accusation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the point? The devil is trying the devil is identified as the deceiver. The only way he can deceive you is to get you to believe something that's not true about the accusations that he makes. Verse 11 tells us the the opposite though. Tells us God's plan for us. And they overcame him. That would be overcoming his accusations too, wouldn't it? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye, ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Now let me ask you a question. If he's talking about present tense, therefore rejoice ye heavens and you that dwell in them. Where are you? Well, we're certainly in the earth right now. So in the earth is the place to overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. But if we fast forward to the time that this occurs during the tribulation, which is the midpoint or the last half of the tribulation period, and it says rejoice those of you that are in the heavens, that's where you are. Or that's where you will be. Then he says, here's the contrast. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea during the last half of the tribulation. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. Well, at that point in time, he'll have three and a half years left. And the countdown is on. We know exactly how many days that'll be. So does he. But I believe the devil knows his time is short even now. I believe he's stepping up his efforts even now in the world that we live in because he knows he has but a short time. But the point is the same. No matter what point in time we look at it, the closer and closer we get to the end of his time, the more agitated and the more active he becomes. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, verse 13, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. If you look at history... The greatest times of persecution for the the people of Israel have been since Jesus was born, not before. Now, they experienced wars and captivity and different things like that prior to that. But the greatest attempts to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth, the people that we know of as the Jews, off the face of the earth, have been since Jesus was born. Just like the Bible says. But God's got a plan for Israel. Now remember Israel is talking, not talking about Israel's of today. He's talking about the remnant that's left. After the church is raptured, after the 144,000 are raptured, after the great multitude is raptured. 
And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. That's talking about three and a half years. Time is a year. Times is two years. Half a time is half a year. That's three and a half years. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood. It's talking about words after the woman. That he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth. And swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. What that means is the place that God has prepared. in the, It's called the wilderness. That's been prepared for the remnant. Wherever that is. The people of that place. Do not accept the words of the Antichrist that speak against Israel. Instead, they help her. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Notice that. It's talking about the ones that are left after the midpoint of the tribulation. They make war. He makes war with the remnant of her seed, which kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we see even in the last half of the tribulation, there'll be people that will get saved. Now, the only indication that we have of anybody ministering in the last half of the tribulation are the two witnesses and the angels that fly through the air and preach the gospel. But remember what Paul said to the Romans, said to us in the, in the book of Romans. He said, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul had a great desire for his people natural descendants of Abraham so much so that he said that if it were possible he'd be willing to give up his salvation for them to be saved now I don't know if he means that literally or not I can't see anybody being willing to give up their salvation for any means whatsoever I mean I love people but that's kind of where I draw the line you know I love them enough to take them with me Not to go instead of me. But Paul makes an an outstanding statement where he said if it were possible, he'd be willing to give up his own salvation for Israel to be saved. That kind of love generated a revelation for him about Israel. And apparently God comforted him by letting him know, if not the details of how, that all of Israel would be saved. Now, Does that mean there will not be one Jew in hell? No, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible for it to mean that. But I think it means in a general sense, all of Israel, the vast, vast, vast majority of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, will be saved. And that's all the more reason why God has to protect Israel, the remnant, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, I want you to back up a couple of verses and notice that God gives the remnant... The wings of an eagle. This is the best indication that we've got that the United States does something on behalf of Israel. If the wings of an eagle is not America, which is known worldwide by the symbol of the eagle, then who in the world could it be? Well, if he gives him the wings of an eagle, gives the remnant of the wings of an eagle, Wings cause something to fly, don't they? It probably means that America provides some kind of airlift to the remnant of Israel. Now, I don't know what kind of size 
group we're talking about. I would expect it to be thousands. But I wouldn't expect it to be millions. Now why would America, if this is America, and I believe it is, you judge it for yourself. But why would America get involved here and not be involved anywhere else? I believe that would have something to do, or at least it could have something to do, with the lack of success of the Antichrist. At the time of the rapture, America is going to be experiencing some severe difficulties. If the church is gone, and I don't know what kind of percentage to believe. I've seen all kinds of polls. But if half of America are really Christians... Can you imagine what America would look like with half of its people gone? Somebody brought out a point the other day when we were talking about this. And that is, remember Paul said, I was alive without the law once. Talking about spiritually alive unto God. But when the law came, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That means children under the age of accountability before they know the difference between right and wrong, they're alive unto God. They're going to be raptured too. So you've got unsaved parents that are going to lose their children in an instant. Can you imagine what that would do to America? Furthermore, I would submit to you that the church are not the percentage of the population that make up the homeless. So from an economic standpoint, America will be crippled. America's tax base, by and large, disappears, at least in great degree. What would America do? Or maybe a better question is, how long would it take America to get back on her feet after the loss of a significant portion of the population? But remember also the Antichrist who starts off the first half of the tribulation as a great diplomat, a man of peace, and apparently he's skilled in speech and oratory abilities. Everything that he says that he's going to do results in disaster. Everything that he attempts fails miserably. There's only so long that you can go on convincing people that you're a great person when your stuff doesn't work. So perhaps by the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, the world's eyes are being opened at least to some degree as the man not being able to fulfill on his promises. So perhaps that's the reason why America finally steps up and says, that's it. We'll take care of and we'll protect Israel. He's already, he meaning the Antichrist has already announced the war against Israel and his plans to destroy the remnant. So maybe that would be the reason why the, why America would step in at that point rather than any point prior to this time. Just something to think about. But it would make at least that part makes sense to me. I guess we'll see when we get there. See meaning see from afar. Chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. 
and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. This is talking about the mass of people. It's not talking about a literal ocean or a body of water. It's talking about figuratively people. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. Remember we saw that over in verse 3 of chapter 12? Now he's going to explain what's going on. Having seven heads and ten horns, talking about kingdoms, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's three and a half years. So we know the time period that's being spoken of, where the devil steps up his efforts and delivers great power, greater power than before, greater power than during the first half of the tribulation to the beast. Now I want you to look back with me in order to identify some of these things and get a clear understanding. We're going to have to look at some things that Daniel saw in the Old Testament. Turn back with me to Daniel. Let's start with chapter 7, I think. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was unique of the Old Testament prophets. Because he and only he seemed to receive, well, not seemed, he was the only one that received any information about God's plan for the, for the world relative to the time of the Gentiles. Let's start in chapter 7 verse 2. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Same thing John sees. Now again, this sea is the mass of people. It doesn't identify a body of water, so it's got to be talking about people. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse or different one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet and made to stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it and behold another beast second like to a bear and it raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it and they said thus unto it arise devour much flesh. And after this I beheld, and lo, another beast, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had a great iron teeth, 
It devoured in broken pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all of the beasts that it were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, I don't know what kind of picture you get when you read these things, but after a while, it's kind of like, okay, there's four beasts. I don't get the wings and the eyes and the heads and all that other kind of stuff. But Daniel is telling us something that John reveals thousands of years later. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns, plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. You remember early in Daniel's um, ministry as a prophet, Nebuchadnezzar called to him after he had tried the magicians and others to interpret a dream. And by the time that he got to Daniel, or called Daniel to him, I guess he was frustrated with the the interpreters, or the magicians trying to interpret the dream unsuccessfully. And so he made it even harder for Daniel. He said, Daniel, not only do I want you to interpret the dream that I had, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You're going to have to reveal what the dream was and what it meant in order for me to know that God's the one that's giving you the interpretation or to know that the interpretation is real. Well, that's what happened. God showed him what the dream was. Now, beginning in verse 31, he interprets the dream, which was the great image. The head of gold, the chest of silver, legs and thighs of brass, and the lower legs and and ten toes being of clay and iron. So let's start reading in verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, and his, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, and his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell thee the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, beginning in verse 37, he interprets the dream, what everything means. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given unto thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of the gold. In other words, the gold head of the image is the kingdom of Babylon. Now, Daniel's interpretation, or let me say it this way. Nebuchadnezzar's vision in the dream corresponds to the beasts that both Daniel, that Daniel saw in chapter 7 
And John sees in chapter 13 of Revelation. It's talking about kingdoms. Well, we know what the first kingdom is. The first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom. The next one, he tells, um, verse 39. After thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as the iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave unto one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the dream is there are four kingdoms. The first is the Babylonian kingdom. The second is the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's the silver breast. The third is the Greek kingdom or the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. The thighs and the belly of brass. And the fourth kingdom is the legs and the ten toes, which is the Roman empire. Now, all of those kingdoms have something in common, and that is they were kingdoms that the devil set up and or influenced, will certainly influence, for the purpose of dominating the world. Now, remember, when we started in chapter 12, God is backing up and taking the big picture view of the world. Therefore, we can identify the devil's plan, and that is to dominate man through government. It's always been what he's attempted to do. He started trying to do that back at the Tower of Babel. There is an inverse relationship between government and freedom. The greater the power of the government, the less individual freedoms. The greater the individual freedoms the less the power of the government. Well, you see which side the devil's on. He wants to dominate man through government. Now, this is not a political statement. This is a Bible truth. That's one thing that made America such a unique country because the founders understood this. Everything about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence 
the Bill of Rights that were added to the Constitution as amendments. Everything about that is to limit government and the power of government for the purpose of mankind having greater freedom. And they understood that those freedoms were endowed by our Creator, not given by the good grace of government. These were men, the founders, I mean, that understood the work of the devil in the earth. They understood the necessity of government, but that government needed to be kept in check. Now, that's just what the Bible says about it, folks. Again, it's not a political statement. It's a Bible truth. So you've got the Babylonian kingdom, which was followed by the Medo-Persian kingdom, which was followed by the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. You remember Alexander the Great at an age of 30-something lamented that there was no more world to conquer and died at a very young age because he lost purpose. But his purpose was to dominate the world, and he pretty much did it, the known world of his day at least. But then following the Greek empire came the Roman empire. Now the important part of the the message, the important part of the, the dream and the interpretation is what happened to those kingdoms. They were destroyed by a stone. That stone was Jesus. That which destroyed the Roman Empire was Christianity. And it grew into a kingdom which spread into all the world. So, if we go back to what John saw in Revelation chapter 13... We see that God is revealing to, to John because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Daniel was the only witness so far before John. So we see the beasts. Let me read it again beginning in verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the four kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the one that had the legs of iron and clay, And the ten toes, representing ten countries, or ten rulers underneath one government. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to the death. And the deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. We've already proved it, but I want you to see it for yourself. What is the beast that's being spoken of? kingdoms of the world now there's another place a little bit further a couple of verses over where John is going to call the antichrist a beast too a little bit later he's going to call the religious system a beast but you got to keep in mind who he's talking about and when 
So where it says the wound, he received a deadly wound and the wound was healed. He's talking about a wound of the kingdom. What wounded the kingdoms of the world? Jesus. The stone which destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's image. Or the image that he saw in the dream. I heard this preached when I was a kid. That the Antichrist would be assassinated but then, but then be raised to life. Now let me ask you a question. Just consider that for a minute. How many of you have ever heard that? Let me ask you a question. Wouldn't the devil get power to raise the dead? Yeah, but some would say, Pastor Mike, the church is gone. Okay, so you're saying then that the devil has power to raise the dead now? Only the church keeps him from it? I thought Jesus said he's the one that had power over death and the grave. You think Jesus shares that with the devil? In fact, Jesus came to get the keys of hell and death, didn't he? Well, then how could the devil raise anything from the dead? Is there any power in the devil whatsoever pertaining to life? Everything about him is death, not life. So what has this got to be talking about? Or what can it be talking about? It cannot be talking about someone that was raised from the dead. Well, then what is it that was raised from the dead? It's talking about the resurrection of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the one that was destroyed by Christianity. The stone not made with hands. Now here's why that's important. Turn back with me. Hold your finger here. We're coming back to this. But turn back with me now to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's salvation. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the work of Jesus. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. That was Artaxerxes' commandment to Ezra to rebuild the city and the temple. From the time of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Now, it's easy to read that seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. That's seven weeks and 62 weeks, which would be 69. But why in the world would he separate seven from the 62? Why wouldn't he just say six, three score and nine? Well, there's a reason for that. From the time of the commandment of Artaxerxes to Ezra to the rebuilding or the, the finishing of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple was 49 years. It took 49 years from the time the commandment was given or seven weeks of seven years to rebuild the temple. So he's dividing this, the time into two different segments. From the time the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks 
and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks. That seems like he's saying and after the 62 weeks, but he's not. He's saying after the 49 years to rebuild the temple in the city. Three score and two weeks shall come before Messiah is cut off. Now, three score and two weeks is 62 weeks of 77 years apiece. Seven years each week, 62 times seven. I'm not sure what that works out to. You can do the math. But remember, he's talking about the Jewish calendar, not the Roman calendar. We know from the time that Artaxerxes gave the commandment to Ezra to rebuild the temple in the city until the time where Jesus was crucified was 483 years on the Jewish calendar. That would be 69 weeks. At that time, Jesus was cut off. The church age begins and time was halted. The 70 weeks were halted. There's only one seven-week period left and that's after the church age ends and the tribulation begins. Now, he, so we know the time period that he's talking about. We know the circumstances that he's referring to. Let's keep reading. And after the 49 years, three score and two weeks shall come until the Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come. Notice that phrase. The people of the prince that shall come. shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and under the end of the war desolations are determined and he this is the prince that shall come and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week that means peace treaty for seven years and in the midst of the week the halfway mark he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, what it's saying is the Antichrist, which is being referred to here, will enter into the peace treaty with Israel for seven years and break that peace treaty halfway through the seven-year period. We know that from what John tells us. But notice where he comes from. He comes from the people that shall destroy the city of Jerusalem. Well, we know who did that. That was the Romans in 70 AD. So notice the prince that shall come, the Antichrist that shall come, comes from the people of the Roman Empire that destroyed Jerusalem. Now, who would that be? We can't even say that Italy is the Roman Empire. The city of Rome was the headquarters of the government of the Roman Empire. But it wasn't the Romans, meaning the the inhabitants of Rome that destroyed the city. When Rome would conquer a, a country or a region, they would assimilate their soldiers and others as a part of the Roman Empire, as part of the Roman army. 
When it's talking about the prince, the people that shall come, the prince shall come from the people that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It's talking about the resurrected Roman Empire. Just like Jesus said it would be. Now turn back with me to Revelation chapter 13. Is this making any sense? Am I going slow enough to understand? Well, I'll have to accept your silence as yes. <laughs> Back to verse 3 of Revelation 13. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. Talking about the Roman Empire that was destroyed by Christianity. And his deadly wound was healed. The empire was resurrected. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, Satan which gave power unto the beast, the resurrected Roman Empire. And they worshipped the beast, the empire itself, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So we see the Antichrist is consolidating these countries that used to make up the Roman Empire and becoming their leader again. That would mean that he's consolidating their Commerce, and you'll see that he tries to consolidate their religions as well. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and the power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwelled in heaven. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about the leader of the resurrected Roman Empire, which is the Antichrist. So at the halfway point, he begins, or he reveals who he really is. He never was a man of peace, but he reveals himself as a man of war, whose ultimate goal is to destroy everything that's of God. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, what does it mean where all the world shall worship him? Well, it's talking about that portion of the world surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, which made up the ancient Roman Empire. The Bible talks about during the, tri- during the uh, millennium that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Why does he have to do that? If the devil's been dealt with, if the Antichrist has been destroyed, if the 200 million man army of the East has been wiped out along with the Antichrist's armies, why does Jesus have to rule with a rod of iron? Aren't all the problems gone? Apparently not. The Bible talks about in Zechariah 14, nations that do not worship the Antichrist who do not take upon themselves the mark of the beast, but who are not saved either. That's who he's ruling with a rod of iron. So when it says the whole earth, it's talking about that part of the world that the Antichrist rules over. It's talking about the resurrected Roman Empire. And all that dwelt upon the earth under the ancient Roman Empire shall worship him the empire and the antichrist whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world notice verse 9 
If any man have an ear, let him hear. Now remember I asked you earlier on to keep in mind the idea or the question. Why does God spend so much time with John talking about Israel? Israel's not the issue. And isn't John trying to reveal to the church things that are to come? Why? Why doesn't God just reveal to the church that there's one seven-year period left called the tribulation? And it's going to be really bad, but don't worry, you'll be in heaven. That's all I really care about. Wouldn't you agree? Why does he go into such detail to tell us what's going on? Verse 9 gives us the first hint that the book of Revelation is not just for the church. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. What do you think the unsaved are going to do when they find themselves in the middle of the tribulation? What do you think people around the world are going to do? What do you think the remnant of Israel is going to do when they find themselves experience the things that others may have witnessed to them or that they may have heard preached were going to happen? What do you think people are going to do that laugh about the idea of the rapture of the church being caught away and then everybody disappears. Well, everybody meaning the church. What do you think is going to happen? Some people are going to run to the Bible. They're going to say, wait a minute. This happened just like they told us. What does it say is coming next? What do you think the 144,000 are going to be referring to in the first three and a half years of the tribulation during their ministry? These things are happening just like the Bible says. God seems to be leaving breadcrumbs for those that are left in the last half of the tribulation to keep from going into eternal damnation. If any has ears to hear, let him hear. Now what he begins to talk about next is the mark of the beast. And the connection that he makes about if any has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said that over and over again, talking to the Jews. But the fact that it's made in connection with the mark of the beast, which comes in the next few verses, is an indication to me that Jesus is making one final attempt to keep his people from going into hell. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He's talking about the Antichrist. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Talking about the Antichrist. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast. Here's somebody else that John calls a beast. He's not talking about the Antichrist and he's not talking about the resurrected Roman Empire. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth from among men and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon now the fact that it says that he looks like a lamb indicates that this is a religious figure 
but he's of the devil. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, talking about the Roman Empire, resurrected Roman Empire, and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, the Roman Empire, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Can I ask you a question? How do miracles deceive people? Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, I believe it is, that at the end, lying wonders would deceive many. What's a lie about fire falling from heaven? It's a wonder. But why would the Holy Ghost inspire Paul to say that it's a lying wonder? Because it's not a real thing. See, this false prophet that's referred to as a beast institutes a religion throughout the resurrected Roman Empire, institutes idolatry like it's not been seen since the days of Egypt. And he has occult powers, but they're not real miracles. They're lying wonders. They're things that deceive people by pretending to be one thing but are in, in fact are something else. See, the devil doesn't all of a sudden get the power of God. The devil doesn't all of a sudden have the ability to control nature. The devil doesn't have the power to bring fire down from heaven. If the devil had power to bring fire down from heaven, why didn't he do it during Elijah's challenge to the prophets of Baal? Remember, that was the test. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. The devil doesn't have the power to bring fire from heaven. So what does he do? Well, I don't have the answers, folks. But I know this. I know it's not the real deal. And it's also another interesting phrase here that he has power in the sight of the beast. Not that he has power on his own to do whatever he wants to whenever he wants to do it. But he has power to do these wonders in the sight of the beast. Could that have something to do with the deception? Could it not just be a trick of nature? But some kind of technology put in play? I don't know. But I know it's not the real thing. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak... And cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again, I'll have to ask the question, where did the devil get power to make statues talk? Seems to me if he has that power, he'd be doing that kind of stuff all the time now, wouldn't he? I mean, we see the result. It deceives people. Was the devil just taking it easy on us until the end? Again, it's a lying wonder. Finally, 
The part that everybody gets freaked out about. And that's the mark of the beast is spoken of. And he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive the mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell. Notice what the mark of the beast is for. It's for commerce. That no man might buy or sell, save or accept, he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of man. And his number is 603 score and 6666. Now, what do we know about the Antichrist? Well, we know that the Antichrist gathers together the countries that made up the Roman Empire. He becomes the leader of those countries. They all pledge their allegiance and their support, their economic systems, their military systems, and ultimately their religious systems under him. And he makes great promises of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, and he talks a good game. And what is one of the first things that happens after he assumes power? Well, a third of the green grass of the earth is destroyed. A third of the waters of the seas are turned into blood. A third of the ships die. And all the fish and everything that's therein. A third of the drinking water, the fresh waters and the rivers dry up. In other words, his first hundred days are not good ones. This continues for three and a half years. Everything the guy says he's going to do or plans to do turns to junk. Because of the famines, because of the wars, because of the plagues, how much of the economic systems of the resurrected Roman Empire are left? Remember that the war that begins the tribulation the Russian and its coalition armies, it says that fire and hail, or hail mingled with fire, I should say, falls on the countries, not just the armies, but falls on the countries, so that only the sixth part is left of those countries, 17%. What do you think the fire mingled with hail does? It burns stuff up. It destroys the economies of these countries. It gets so bad that the Antichrist has to institute this mark of the beast system to control what's left, what little bit is left to buy and sell. See, folks, this is not the devil's master plan. This is the only opportunity he has left to control that part of the world. Now, I grew up thinking the mark of the beast was a terrible thing. And I I, I don't know why we had the idea of Maybe it was just the devil's deception. But I was always afraid as a Christian kid that if somehow or another I might be tricked into taking the mark of the beast and lost forever. But this is the very thing that Jesus is speaking to in verse 9. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's saying to the remnant of Israel, not to the church, He's saying to the remnant of Israel, know the time that you're living in. Be aware of what's coming next. And don't accept it. You'll find out that the further 
we go into the book of Revelation, it shows more and more the defeat of the enemy, the failure of the Antichrist, the failure of the resurrected Roman Empire, even so that the Antichrist turns on the false prophet and destroys all religion whatsoever and proclaims himself as the only God that there is. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus, the victorious one. Folks, the earth is not a good place to be in these days. I'm not talking about our days, in the days of the tribulation. But the last half of the tribulation is going to be horrible. I take comfort in the fact that there's at least the possibility that America at the end stands on the side of Israel. It's kind of nice to be on their side once again, isn't it? It's been a long spell since we were. Where are you during this time? You know, the Bible doesn't even say that we're in heaven and aware of these things that are going on. Maybe that's the reason why God had to tell us through the revelation he gave to John. Because it's quite possible, maybe even likely, that we'll be completely oblivious to what's going on in the earth. We'll be enjoying the presence of God. What does that mean? That means our time to work is now. One of the things that I like about the book of Revelation is because it stirs me up to bring people into the kingdom of God so that they miss out on all this stuff. I don't know if that was God's intended purpose or his main purpose. There's certainly a result. Amen? Amen. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You already have the greater power than anything and everything the devil will ever do. It's in you now. That's why he can't take you over, no matter what he tells you. That's why he can't take this world over. No matter how many people follow him, yield to his influence, he'll never be able to take over the world as long as we're here. Why? Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Father, that you have not appointed your people under wrath. You made a way for us to escape all of these things. Before the first moment of tribulation begins, we'll be enjoying your presence in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you've made us aware of these things, that we can prepare ourselves and we can occupy till you come. For that purpose, Father, we ask you for the rain. Pour out your spirit upon the earth. We know that that doesn't come from heaven. We know that comes to us. So pour out your spirit from among your church upon the earth in such a way that the glory of God is seen and known. 
Lord, we pray that it would be even as you've spoken, that the glory of these last days will be greater than any days that the world has ever known, even the days of the early church. We pray that healings would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. We pray for an outpouring of spiritual manifestations, the revelation gifts of the Spirit in operation, the utterance gifts of the Spirit in operation, and, Father, the power gifts of the Spirit in operation. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak your word, the boldness that comes from stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Holy Child, Jesus. Father, we ask that you would open doors that man cannot open. We ask that you would make a way in supernatural and even spectacular power for the word of God to go forth that multitudes of people would come into the kingdom of God. Stir us up, Lord, that we would care about the lost like we've never cared before. That we would pray for those that do not know you like we've never prayed before. That we would be ready, equipped with the truth of your word, to help those that we come in contact with. Lord, we pray that you would cause the church to rise up in power, the power of the Holy Ghost. So that worldwide, we would function as the body of Christ in concert with one another, not in competition. And that we would do the works of Jesus in every respect. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well, let's all stand together. How do you see the devil? Let me say it this way. The devil sees him, uh, I'm sorry, God sees him as a joke. One who makes great claims and great boasts of his great power and his great ability. But God knows he's defeated. God knows he's powerless against those who are equipped with the things of God. He really meant what he said when he said we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony. Words bring the power of God on the scene. What we say brings the defeat of the enemy. The gospel, the word of God, is the power of God to save, to rescue, to deliver, to make safe and sound, and to heal. We need to be a people that speak God's word. 
in these last days like never before. We need to display the defeat of the enemy in our lives. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us.